Welcome to Marvelicious Toys. Hosted by Justin and his amazing friends, Arnie and Marjorie. We bring you news and reviews of Marvel toys, statues, and more. Because not all Marvel collections can be bagged and boarded. They're not just toys, they're Marvelicious. Hello and welcome to another issue of Marvelicious Toys. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie. And I'm Justin. And we've got a little bit of a different type of episode for you guys. Is it the very special episode? It might be. Where we go to buy a bike and the guy's bad and makes us take off our clothes? No, because Stuart Moore is not a bad guy. He's a very good guy. But part of the reason we went weekly is because we wanted to bring more coverage to Marvelicious Toys. And while we're still not doing comics coverage because there's a lot of great podcasts out there that do it already, we've always covered books such as the collectible books that come out around the holidays and things, plus all the novels I reviewed here on Marvelicious Toys as part of the now-playing Marvel movie coverage from Howard the Duck through Iron Man 2. But something that really intrigued me was the new line of Marvel prose novels adapting some of the most popular comic storylines in recent years into prose fiction for a new group of listeners. It's an intriguing concept, and one that I'm not entirely sure how it's being embraced by comic fans, as I haven't seen a lot of chatter out there about it on the sites, but I was incredibly interested, and so I picked up the Civil War prose novel, and then I asked Stuart Moore if he'd come on the show and talk to us a little bit about the background of the prose novels and the writing process for Civil War and how you take a comic arc that's over a 100 issues of comics and break it down to a single novel. Now, I do want to give a bit of a spoiler warning. This will spoil a couple of things from the Civil War comic arc, which did end five years ago. So I think (laughs) it's kind of like spoiling the end of The Sopranos at this point. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. (laughs) And a couple of separate spoilers for the novel. And joining us now is Stuart Moore, former editor at DC and Marvel and currently overseeing the Marvel Prose Novel Initiative and author of the Civil War Prose Novel. Hello, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. For listeners who aren't familiar with your previous works or your background, can you tell us how you got started writing and editing and how you came to be involved with the Marvel Comics? Well, I started as a uh, as a book editor at the beginning of my career, and then uh, I worked for a while at DC uh, Comics, where I was part of the editorial group that became Vertigo. So I was one of the founding editors of that imprint. I worked with a lot of really great people over there. And then I was in the Marvel Knights imprint for about two years, and that was wild. That was when Joe Quesada first became editor-in-chief at Marvel, and we were trying all kinds of crazy things. And then I went freelance. I've been a freelance writer mostly, um, and occasionally editor, for about the last 10 years. I wrote a run-on on uh, DC's Firestorm. I've done various Wolverine comics at Marvel. I did a run on Namor last year. Um, that was fun. And yeah, just a lot of assorted things. And uh, now I sort of divide my time between um, writing and editing select projects, including, as you said, the Marvel Prose line. Now, how did you get involved in the Marvel Prose Initiative? Well, I keep in touch with Marvel. I know a lot of the editors. I know Axel Alonso, the editor-in-chief. He and I actually worked together back at Vertigo. And when they decided to do this, this is the first time Marvel has published novels themselves. They've always liked 
licensed them out to book publishers in the past. And when they decided to do this, they decided they wanted to go outside and bring in an editor on a freelance basis because their editors are all handling many more books than they should be already. And also they needed someone with book publishing experience. And as I said, that's where I started. So I kind of combined comics and books experience, which made me ideal for this. I really wanted to write one when we came on, and that was part of the arrangement. So I wound up writing the first book, Civil War. Now, you say this is the first time Marvel's done the prose novels themselves. Do you know some of the reasoning behind why going into the prose market? You'd have to ask them about that at Marvel. As far as I know, it was just something they decided, why not try ourselves? The way book publishing works nowadays, Marvel has access to the same distribution channels that any book publisher does. But uh, I don't actually know all the decision-making that went into it. When you were brought on board and talked about writing Civil War, what was discussed as the target audience for a prose novel versus their comics? Well, uh, we talked a lot about wanting the books to be accessible, not just to Marvel fans, but to people who might not be as familiar with the universe as comics fans are. These books are going to be sold largely in bookstores and, of course, online. So we wanted to be able to reach, I, I don't like to call them civilians, but people <laughs> who are hardcore comics fans. And in particular, we wanted to reach people who know um, know the Marvel characters from the movies and from the animated series. So we've made certain changes in the status quo from of some of the characters from where they were in the original properties, like Civil War, up to sort of bring them in line with where the characters are now. The most notable one in that case was Spider-Man, and where we decided to go with the unmarried Spider-Man, which worked out pretty well from a story standpoint anyway. When looking at trying to tie into the movies and their audience, what made Civil War the best jumping-on point for a new series of novels? Well, Civil War, uh, I don't know if we, thought we all thought of it that way. The reason we picked Civil War, or the reason they picked Civil War, really, was it's Marvel's best-known and arguably most successful event storyline of modern times. And it just had a lot of juice. It involves a lot of Marvel characters, which made it a challenge to write a novel form, actually. But it's just, it's something that comes with a certain controversy and a certain fame attached to it already. It wound up being a very nice project to have out around the time of the Avengers movie because it does involve all of those characters as well. And that was part of the planning. So the way I look at it is that if you've seen the Avengers movie, you've seen how these characters come together for the first time and really get to know each other, really become a fighting force and learn to work together. And if you read Civil War, you kind of see the bookend of that, where things reach a point uh, among them where they can't work together in the same way. And everyone has to choose sides behind either Captain America or Iron Man, who both very, very firmly and passionately believe in what they're doing. So it was chosen because the Avengers movie was coming out. That was part of it. But it was also chosen just for the strength of the story itself. And looking at the status quo from the movies themselves, the landscape for Marvel heroes have changed so drastically between when Civil War ended in 2007 and then the next year, 2008, Iron Man came out and really started the Avengers film series. And yeah. you, you say that you modified things, but given that this story sets Captain America versus Iron Man in ways that seem designed to put one as the good guy and one as the bad guy, though it's up to the reader to determine which is which, yeah. and the Avengers movie have them both good guys, was there concern on either your part or voiced to you by others of making these characters seem unheroic? Well, yes and no. The concern wasn't so much making them seem unheroic. The concern was that, and I, I believe this was a concern with the original series as well, that the story itself, the narrative itself, shouldn't seem to be taking one side or the other too strongly. Most comics 
professionals and fans, I think, fall down a little more on the side of Captain America's end of the argument. And just in case anyone listening to this doesn't know what we're talking about, the trigger event for Civil War is that after a disaster where a group of unprepared teenage superheroes accidentally cause mass deaths in a battle against villains, um, the federal government decides that all superheroes and villains need to be registered and trained before they're allowed to operate and that their identities must be made public. And Iron Man decides that he should be the public face of this and that if anyone, if this is going to happen, which he believes it is, that he should be the one to make sure it's done right. And Captain America, in a bit of a twist, finds this an unacceptable assault on civil liberties and finds himself at odds with not only his fellow Avenger, Iron Man, but with the federal government. So that's what sets it off. So it's kind of an argument of security state versus individual liberties. And that all makes it sound very, very political and, and highfalutin. And most of it is guys pounding the hell out of each other. <laughs> but that's what drives it. And that's why everyone has to line up behind one side or the other. So yes, the feedback I got from Marvel at early stages was that they really didn't want Tony Stark to come out looking like a villain as the whole thing went along. And I was very conscious of that. And what I found to my surprise was, while politically I was probably a little more on Captain America's side, I found myself liking Tony Stark and understanding where he was coming from more than I did Cap as I went along, as I wrote the thing. So yeah, that was the concern. It wasn't so much that either of them would seem like a villain. It was more that we didn't want to be force-feeding one point of view to the reader, if that makes any sense. Completely. And I noticed that when reading your novel and when reading the comics, and it's interesting to know which side you came down on, you know, before you started writing. And then as you wrote, you talked about some of the allegories of the story. And that's something comic fans have lauded about Civil War is how it was able to fictionalize the real world events and comment on them and look at America in a post 9-11 environment. Mm -hmm. And People have drawn analogs between the Superhero Registration Act and the Patriot Act and the Negative Zone Prison and Guantanamo Bay and so on. And given that these types of social issues seem more downplayed in 2011 and 2012 than they were in 2007 and 2008, and with the focus now socially being more, you know, like on the Occupy movement and the breakdown of the middle class, so these are events that you actually mention in your book, setting a time for for your story versus the comics. Do you feel this story carries as much weight set under an Obama America as it does under a Bush America? I was worried about that when I started it, and I was very aware that the backdrop had to be changed subtly as it went along. I didn't want it to date, and I actually had an exchange of tweets with Mark Miller, who I've known forever. We didn't really consult very very much on this project, but uh, he used to <laughs> he used to write Swamp Thing when I was the editor. Um, <laughs> so uh, so we've known each other for a long time. I love his work and the original Civil War. I think just in terms of tension points and transitions and cliffhangers is one of the best. It, it's probably the best multi-character event story I've ever read. It just keeps hammering one thing after another at you in a way that all builds to that rather shocking conclusion. Shocking to me, anyway, when I read it, uh, when I read it the first time. So what I decided to do, what to me, the, there were a couple changes that had to be made, and they were all in the background. And one is the original Civil War. I've heard people at Marvel say they really felt like they caught lightning in a bottle with it because it was coming out toward the tail end of the Bush era when, as you say, all this stuff was very, very much on people's minds and there were very strong debates going on. And the basic debate behind it, as I said, is do we really want to live in a security state at the expense of our individual liberties? And that's not just a Republican-Democrat argument because it's something that crosses ideological lines in a lot of ways. In updating it and in, in writing it for this period, I felt the backdrop had to be more like, 
well, we built this security state. It's done. It's here. It's in place. Did you really think they weren't going to use it? And there are a few references in the novel to the fact that the last 10 years have been very, very good for Stark Enterprises, because even though they don't build munitions anymore, they've gotten a hell of a lot of Homeland Security contracts. Um, there's just been a lot of money flying around under both administrations for that. So there's a little underlying sense in this, as there was in the original. It's all in there. But there's a sense that Tony Stark believes that his motives are pure in wanting to be the public face of this. But he's also making a lot of money at the same time. <laughs> And he doesn't see any conflict there, but other people might. So that was one of the updates. The other thing that's really different between now and then is the sort of decline of the economy, the turning point in 2008, and the fact people are, um, a lot of people just aren't really doing very well now. And I wanted that to play into the kinds of fears people have of superheroes coming in and uh, just demolishing their homes or killing their loved ones by accident, that sort of thing. Villains killing their loved ones, maybe not by accident. And just the kind of risk there was of having these incredibly powerful beings running around with the power of atomic bombs in some cases. So those are the two differences. It doesn't affect much of the action. Um, we changed some of the action for other reasons having to do with character, mostly. But it does influence the backdrop of the whole thing. And it seemed to me to fall together very smoothly. Obviously, it's up to the reader to determine whether it works for them or not. And I have a lot of questions that go into what you've just said. So I'm prefacing because I don't want you to think I've ignored large chunks, but parsing out what you've just said, I have a lot of topics I'd like to get your thoughts on if I could. Sure, yeah, good. You talked about how, yeah, you had to pare down a lot of things from the comics. So I'd like to start there because Civil War, it was, it was a huge comic story. I mean, there's over a hundred issues of comics. Did you have any hesitation about taking such a large story and trying to adapt it to a single book? Well, we all agreed that uh, the adaptation should be primarily of the main miniseries. And if you read the main Civil War miniseries start to finish, it's pretty much a complete story. There's stuff that happens in tie-ins. There's only one complete scene and a couple of other bits that I adapted directly from another book. And all of those are from J. Michael Straczynski's Amazing Spider-Man. Um, because there's some stuff that happens there that very, very directly influences Peter Parker's decision-making in the course of the story. Let me say also, the four viewpoint characters I chose, one difference between a big multi-character comic and a novel is that a novel tends to be, not always, but a novel is usually much more contained when it comes to viewpoint. You're usually seeing things, even a third-person story, is usually sort of seen through the eyes of one character at a time. So we kind of pared this down so that every scene is seen basically from the viewpoint of either Iron Man, Captain America, Spider-Man, or the Invisible Woman, whose role is somewhat beefed up in this story. So there, like, Spider-Man's very important in the original story, but he's even more important in this one. He's very much the everyman coming into this, trying to figure out what's right, trying to decide whether he's made the right decision, which side he's on, what he should be doing, and what the consequences are going to be. So that's part of it. The other thing we all decided should be done early on is that there shouldn't be quite so many minor Marvel characters in significant roles just popping in and out of the story. We wanted it a little more contained so that the casual reader could pick it up and not be confused by quite the parade of costumes coming in and out. That also doesn't work quite as smoothly in prose as it does in a comic where Steve McNiven can draw a beautiful panel with 80 characters in it and half of them will have a line and you just understand who they are. That doesn't work quite as smoothly. So we, in a way, we brought the scale down. On the other hand, in a novel, you actually have more space. So I was able to sort of tease out a lot of scenes and flesh them out and take things a little further. But to answer your core question, I really didn't take any of the tie-ins 
except for the amazing some of the amazing Spider-Man stuff as canon, as important material that needed to be adapted. All the core stuff is taken directly from the main miniseries. And one of the strengths of Civil War, the original, I think, is that you can read it that way and you get a satisfying story. I completely agree. That said, I reread the Civil War comics when your novel came out because I wanted to have those fresh in my mind looking forward to this interview. And one of the things that really I felt supported, I felt there were some core titles. There was the core series, like you mentioned, an amazing Spider-Man, so vital to that. Yeah, that crucial. That one's really crucial. The other one, though, that I would think played as big a part was the Frontline series, which, while it focuses on a couple minor characters and it is sort of an anthology of sorts, the way it has different stories in each one, it had three big points to it, I thought. First of all, you talk about how the New Warriors caused the explosion at the beginning, and it really followed Speedball in a character evolution that I found to be one of the strongest of the comic series. The other is you've got report Ben Urick and Sally Floyd investigating both sides of the war. You've already mentioned Tony Stark was making a whole lot of money, and they start with that, and then I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but in the very last issue, they have a big scene where they drop a bomb on what they think the real reason for the whole war was, and it wasn't money, and it wasn't anything that was stated. It wasn't even the New Warriors. And then the third thing is Namor having sleeper cells in the U.S., and you do bring Namor into your novel in the second half. But with all of this, I completely understand the need to condense to get down to a novel form. But what was your view of these storylines and their importance to the overall Civil War when making the decision to not include them? Well, I guess there are different answers to each one. Speedball, that's an interesting character evolution, but it's almost a separate story. And we decided not to deal with that at all within this. Actually, it's it's a similar answer to the different storylines. They're all interesting threads that came out of the book, and that's what you do with a, if you're on the ball, that's what you do with a with an event storyline in comics. You want something that'll spin out. In the case of Namor and the Sleeper Cells, that led to an absolutely terrific Wolverine run uh, that I think was... Oh, God, I think it was Mark Guggenheim and uh, Humberto Ramos, maybe. But that was outside the scope of our story. And we didn't want the novel to sprawl out in that many directions. So basically, the New Warriors are the inciting incident. And to me, it's almost more powerful for the Civil War story itself if they're just gone. They're just dead. They're not responsible. They play no part in the story. Their folly is what sets all this off. And then, um, well, I just spoiled the the prologue, but uh, there you go. Uh, In in the end, it's a five-year-old story, so spoiler alerts are well in fashion. But the same is true with the Namor sleeper cells. I thought that was a great idea, him having sleepers within within the surface government. And in fact, if the Namor book I wrote last year had gone on longer, I wanted to get into that. I I wanted to explore that further. But for Civil War, it was kind of a side issue. It wasn't really relevant. And the important thing to me about Namor within the Civil War story itself was, was he going to help his old friend Captain America or was his disdain and hatred for the surface world strong enough that he would just let them tear themselves to bits instead? And what part did Sue, uh, Sue Richards play in that and his feelings for her? So that seemed more integral and more core to the story than that. As far as the, uh, the Ben Urich stuff, um, 
<laughs> I'm actually drawing a blank on the uh, the reason for the civil war that you brought up. Um, what they ended up saying is it was Namor, and that to avoid a war with the Atlanteans, Tony Stark being a futurist and seeing the future was really a whole thing to stop a war with Atlantis to have this more minor skirmish in America. Oh, that's interesting. I uh, I read all the frontline stuff, but I don't even remember that, and I wouldn't have included that because to me that weakens the core story. It's a great story on its own. It's a great little spin-off thing. But I think that weakens the very, very real ideological conflict between Iron Man and Captain America, which is something that needed to play out on its own. So uh, that I don't remember if I reviewed the whole thing or not when we started it. But I wouldn't have wanted to unveil that as the real cause of the Civil War because I don't think it was. Now, you've mentioned Spider-Man a couple times, and he is a large portion of the story. Deservedly so, he also was in the comics. And in both the comics and in your book, I've kind of seen him as the moral compass for the reader. In this book, though, with the post-One More Day status, I was wondering how you felt when adapting him and trying to write him when he didn't have Mary Jane to bounce thoughts off of and to have support or disdain his decision. Yeah, I was a little worried about that because it, he is in a very different situation. But in a way, it kind of focused his dilemma a little more, to my mind, because all he's worried about is Aunt May. Is Aunt May going to be safe? What's going to happen with her? And it let me write a little mini-drama that weaves in and out of the book involving Aunt May and Mary Jane that is one of my favorite parts of the book. I didn't know if it would work at the beginning, but I think it did. Again, it's up to, it's up to the reader to say, but... Uh, but it was smoother than I expected. It, it was it, because it was probably the biggest character change in the book. Um, you talked a little about Iron Man, and Iron Man changed a bit since the movies have come out. But Civil War is where they really cemented the idea of him having a public identity in the comics. So he's not really that different. He's a little more, <laughs> a little more of a wise ass, and he's a little bit cockier in the. Uh, he's cocky in a different way in the movies, and I tried to incorporate some of that particularly in the press conference scenes. But he's not that different. Spider-Man, on the other hand, has a completely different status quo. But it allowed me to do something I really liked with him and his personal life that, um, like I said, fell together pretty smoothly and was a little more of a closed-off story as opposed to all the stuff in the comic which led to the Kingpin, Back in Black, One More Day, and all of that. And just while we're on the topic, we've heard various writers kind of weigh in about writing Spider-Man as married, writing him as single. Do you find it easier to write him one way or the other? Not especially. I agree with the um, decision to make him single again. I think it's a little more, I think it's just a little more true to the character. I think he just works a little better that way. But in terms of writing him, he's pretty much the same person. I think, I think he works either way. You mentioned Iron Man and changing in the movies and things. And one thing I noticed in your novel is you actually reference scenes and characters from the Iron Man movie. I'm, I'm blanking on the reporter's name from yeah. the scene. Yeah, and then, too, but I know who you mean. Yeah. <laughs> And the uh, referencing the entire I Am Iron Man scene while also melding this with a comic world. How easy is it to meld these two worlds and have readers been accepting of the movie continuity kind of pushing its way into the comic continuity in that manner? I can't speak to how people will accept it. I mean, some people have complained about the novel because it doesn't follow Marvel continuity exactly, which was never the plan. It also doesn't follow the movie continuity exactly. It's sort of a merger of, of the two. And we, we all agreed that that was the way to go. We want the novel line, which I'm overseeing, which I'm editing the later books of, we want them to sort of interlock with each other in a very loose way. 
but we don't feel the need, like the example I always give, and we this is exactly the way I phrase it them, if at the time the original comic we're adapting, at the time it was written, Reed Richards was an orangutan because of something that happened in Fantastic Four a couple months before. We don't want it to be an orangutan in the novel. We want it to be Reed Richards. Like, we want the casual reader to be able to pick it up and read it. So we're kind of compromising that way. In the case of Iron Man, in the case of those, I just saw an opportunity there, and this will actually be picked up a little bit in one of the future novels, but I saw an opportunity there for the press conference he had to give in Civil War to be almost a sequel to the one at the end of the first Iron Man film. And Tony Stark is very comfortable talking to the press. He's very likable and he knows it. He knows he can sort of bring them along. But in this case, the one just seemed to follow on the other. So I set up a specific time frame. I think I said he'd come out as Iron Man a year before, something like that. And this is just kind of the next step. He feels this is the next step in his personal growth and his relationship with the public as a superhero. The thing I love about your Reed Richards orangutan analogy is that's not so far-fetched for a Fantastic Four comic. No, it's not. <laughs> also, in paring it down, though, I noticed that your story did involve so many characters. And while you mentioned, yeah, there are 80 in the panel, there were still a good number to really make this book feel very full of comic characters, both A-list all the way down to D-list. And then you also name-drop many more. I yeah. lost count over 50 various Marvel characters. Yeah, and you've just hit on the hardest part about writing this book, which was I didn't want to drown the reader in casual references or obscure characters, but at the same time, you need a certain number of people on either side of the conflict in order to make this story work. Otherwise, it's not a civil war. It's just kind of a fight between Captain America and Iron Man. <laughs> so that was absolutely a balancing act. I will say I think this book was possible now in a way it wouldn't have been 10 or 12 years ago because so many of the Marvel characters are familiar to people from all the Marvel movies that have come out over the last, uh, since the year 2000, really, since the first X-Men movie. So even casual readers, I think, are going to have some idea who Wolverine is, who Mr. Fantastic is, who the Punisher is even. So I kind of felt a little freer to do that than I would have if I'd been, if I felt I was speaking to an audience to whom I had to introduce all these characters from scratch. I, I didn't feel like that was true. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing about the time we're living in, that these characters have really reached out and taken over the pop culture world in a way that wasn't true even 15 years ago. In that same vein, I found it very interesting from a just technical standpoint about the subplots you chose to include and not include, such as you make reference to Matt Murdock identity being outed pre-Civil War. How did you walk that tightrope of having too much secondary and tertiary character information versus making the characters feel like they have their own stories going on in this universe? Yeah, it was absolutely case by case. The Daredevil story has actually changed quite a bit because it's not revealed within Civil War, the miniseries, but in the original story, that's not Matt Murdock. It's Danny Rand, Iron Fist, masquerading as Daredevil. And that's a long-term storyline that was going on in Daredevil at the time. So we didn't want to do that. That's just too complicated. I actually argued. I had, I can't remember if it was Marvel or my own freelance editor, Marie Javens, who argued this with me. It might have been both, that the Daredevil stuff was too complicated. The bit about his identity being outed. And I argued that we should keep it in here for the specific reason that it gives him a different perspective on registration than anyone else. He's actually liable for all kinds of 
legal problems if he has to reveal his identity in a way that the others aren't. So that was why that one was kept in. And yes, it did require a bit more explanation. Wherever possible, I opted to simplify the characters. Namor, if you'll notice, it's again, it's a little bit between the lines, but the way Namor is handled in there, the surface world barely knows him. He hasn't been seen very much. Atlantis has been pretty much under the radar for a while, or <laughs> sonar, I guess, for a while. So they really don't know what he's going to do. Also, I simplified Atlantis itself. In the comic, it's been wrecked and moved a few times, you know, and we, and in fact, now it's connected to the X-Men, and we didn't want to do that. We just wanted it to be a lost kingdom ruled by its unpredictable ruler who has certain connections to the surface world, primarily through Captain America and the Fantastic Four. So there were things like that. Where possible, we wanted to simplify things. In the case of Daredevil, it was something that played thematically directly into the main story, so I wanted to keep it. Now, looking at the end of the book, while not in the core Civil War storyline, in some of the Civil War aftermath comics, one of the biggest things that happened that got national media, mass media attention was that Captain America was killed. And that doesn't happen in this book, given that it's a, such a touch point and that it's something just about even even non-comic book readers remember that Captain America died in the comics and then there was a movie. Why not include that as the coda to the novel? It's the same answer I gave to the other, the other stories before. I felt that was its own story. It feeds out of the end of Civil War, but it's something with so many implications and it kicks off an entire storyline that I, I, we just didn't want to get into it. I was worried about that when I first took the assignment and I was kind of relieved when I reread the Civil War miniseries and realized it ends with Cap sitting in prison. And I didn't remember that. I thought it ended with him being shot, but that actually happens in the Captain America book after that. So, I opted to go with that because I felt it was a better ending to the Civil War series. And I suspect Mark Miller did, too, though I haven't discussed it with him directly. I think what's important, well, I don't want to spoil the end, but what's important is the decision Captain America makes at the end, not his death. Um, his death is a result of other forces that aren't directly connected to the conflict that sets off Civil War. It's a bit of a punch in the gut. And in the comics universe, it led to... Iron Man reconsidering some of his decisions. But I actually think putting that in there would have weakened the ending of Civil War. People may very well disagree with that. That's fine. You know, <laughs> and I had people who complained that the book didn't go all the way to the end, when in fact it did. <laughs> it just didn't go into the, uh, the, the various CODA stories, like Brian Bendis's story, The Conversation, that came afterwards, uh, which is a very powerful book. But I didn't feel it was part of the main Civil War story, and I wanted to leave. I really like the note on which the original series ends with Tony Stark, and I wanted to keep that. And there's all kinds of stuff changed around near the end. I have a new epilogue with Captain America that's not adapted from anywhere. But I wanted it to end with the same scene with Tony Stark, because I really like the way that works, the way you see him in that final moment. And I won't say any more about it than that. <laughs> Now, Civil War is so loved by some comic fans that it's now been adapted to a novel. There was the loosely based video game on it. There's rampant fan speculation that Avengers 2 or Avengers 3 is going to adapt Civil War. Is that something you'd like to see? Would you like to see Civil War on the big screen? I'd love to see it on the big screen. I don't know if it's uh, appropriate for the next Avengers movie. If I were doing it, I'd probably wait a little bit. I'd probably show these characters together a bit more, and I suspect it's not going to be the next one because they've got Thanos teed up for that, but I don't really know. I think eventually, yes, I think it'd be a wonderful story to tell. 
And now, looking at the future of the novels, you're also involved overseeing the series of novels. What is the future post-Civil War for the Marvel prose? The second book is already out. Uh, it's Astonishing X-Men, gifted, based on the Joss Whedon storyline, and that's written by Peter David, who uh, we all thought was just the perfect guy to capture Joss's kind of snappy pattern writing style. That came out uh, within the last month. And the next one will be um, Avengers Breakout, based on the Brian Bendis storyline, uh, adapted by Elisa Quitney, who's a novelist, um, also has been a comic book editor and writer. And that'll be out in January. After that, we have an Iron Man book that I'm not ready to talk too much about yet, but we're, uh, we're just getting that together now. So Marvel is committed to four books. I'm editing those three that come after Civil War. No, I'm editing two right now because X-Men's out. And after that, we'll see. I think they have plans to continue, but I haven't had that confirmed. And one thing you mentioned when talking about the different continuities, is it intended that these books each stand alone, or are you working with these authors to create a new continuity and the Peter David's novel comes after Civil War and such? There's a loose continuity, but it's not in linear order like that. In fact, Peter's book is very separate from the others because the X-Men don't play much of a part in Civil War, and they play less of one in the in the novel, and they don't... They don't have much to do with uh, Avengers Breakout either. So they're kind of off on their own. And that's the beginning of what could be a, a mini-series of its own within the novels if it's successful. It technically takes place before Civil War, um, and that has to do with some stuff involving Nick Fury. But that's not something anyone needs to worry about to sit down and books. Avengers Breakout will also be set, I believe, before Civil War. But again, it's the links are loose. Basically, what we're trying to do is make the books stand on their own and at the same time not contradict each other. So you can sit down and figure out the order if you want. Um, the Iron Man novel will probably, it'll probably be a little more obvious where that fits in. So yes, they are their own continuity, but it's loose enough that it's not something anyone needs to worry about when picking up one of the books and sitting down and reading it. And looking at how each of these novels are adaptations of comic runs and very well-known successful ones, how do you feel about that versus original stories in prose? Do you think that adapting comics is bringing in a new audience to comics, or do you think that some people may feel they've read that story already? Well, it all depends on the story. It depends on how well it's done. That's the most important thing. I'd love to do original books if the series is successful. This is how it's set up at Marvel. And I think they feel that, um, at the beginning at least, they could get a little more attention by adapting some stories that are already known within the comics community. So we'll see how it goes. One thing I like about Marvel is they think fast. They think on their feet. And if something works, they'll keep with it. If another good idea comes along, they're very good at jumping at it. So we'll see where this goes. All right. Well, sir, thank you very much for your time. I want to tell you I really enjoyed reading that book. It was a great joy, and hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Sounds good. So thank you to Stuart for coming on the show, and I really enjoyed this book. Stay tuned. I'll be doing a review of the book later on and comparing and contrasting with the comic itself. But I do kind of want to say I'm a bit bummed at the coverage of these, and I do hope more sites and blogs pick up on these prose novels because... Despite being fairly plugged in, I didn't realize until I was talking with Stuart in the interview that the second novel, Peter David's X-Men Gifted, was released. And I say released, but not in stores, because I went to stores, actual physical bookstores, that very night after I talked to Stuart Moore to buy the book, and none of the stores had it. 
And so I went to Nook because Marvel made a deal with Barnes and Noble to publish content exclusively to the Nook, which is why I downloaded the Nook app to get the Civil War book. And Astonishing X-Men isn't even on the Nook. I had to buy a physical copy and have it mailed from Amazon. Wow. To me, it seems like an interesting way to go about it. It's almost like the reverse of doing a movie novelization where you take a movie that's, you know, contained within an hour and a half or two hours and expand on it. Well, they're taking 60, 70 hours of reading material and condensing it into a novel length story. Yeah, it's definitely an intriguing concept. And I did enjoy Civil War quite a bit. And like I say, I'll go into a detailed review at another time. But I certainly think this is a great way for some people to play catch up who have found Marvel through the movies and want to be able to converse about some of these major storylines. Like when we're talking, is Iron Man 3 going to have Extremis? Well, Stuart didn't say what Iron Man arc was going to be adapted in the upcoming Iron Man novel, but I'd find it hard to think it would be anything but. Hmm. Well, let me know if they ever decide to adapt these into graphic novels. (laughs) (laughs) You're kind of backwards there. (laughs) Oh, darn it. The abstraction there, just, you're you're like Inception. I was going to say, it's like Inception. I'm just getting myself confused at this point. (laughs) Now, is there a movie or... (laughs) So thanks again to Stuart for coming on the show. So that is our show for this week. We will be back next week returning to our normal format with reviews of Kotobukiya Bishoujo Black Widow. And Matt Damon. Yeah. <laughs> so until next time, true collectors. Make mine marvelicious. Thank you for listening to this episode of Marvelicious Toys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help our show by leaving a positive review for the show on iTunes. There's even more Marvelicious content at our website, MarveliciousToys.com. At the site, you can see pictures of the products we discussed, find checklists for Marvel toys, talk and trade with the Marvelicious forums, and much more. It's all at MarveliciousToys.com. We want to hear your thoughts on Marvel collectibles. You can leave reports of your latest toy finds as well as product reviews on our voicemail at 803-MARVEL-4 or email an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at MarveliciousToys.com. Marvelicious Toys is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. Podcast enhancement by Barrett. Marvelicious website design by Jason. Graphic design by Justin. Announcements by Brock. The Marvelicious theme song, Bam Pow Kablam, is composed by Joe Harrison. See more of Joe's work at www.starwarsfanworks.com slash lionsmouth. If you also like Star Wars, Star Wars Collecting is covered weekly at our other podcast, Star Wars Action News, which you can find at swactionnews.com. Marvel Comics and all of the Marvel Multiverse contains are the intellectual property of Marvel Entertainment Incorporated, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Marvelicious Toys is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Because Barnes and Noble have an exclusive deal with the, because Barnes and Noble have an exclusive deal with the Nook. Yes, they make the. (laughs) I would hope so.